Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. In this book discussion, Yale Law School's Professor of Law Reba Siegel and Linda Greenhouse discuss their book, Before Roe v. Wade, Voices That Shaped the Abortion Debate Before the Supreme Court's Ruling. Yale Law School Professor Jack Balkin provides an introduction and commentary to frame the discussion. This book is a source book. It's, it's not written as a conventional history of Roe versus Wade. Rather, it's a collection of different speeches and uh, uh, excerpts from books and information articles and, and a primary source material. And there's lots of history in it because uh, interspersed between these primary source materials are interpretations and explanations of what's going on. So the first question I want to ask both of you is, why do this book in the form of a source book. In other words, why is this the way to present this very difficult set of issues in America's history? Well, it is a difficult, you know, much freighted set of issues. And so our effort was really to recreate the landscape on which Roe against Wade fell on January 22nd, 1973. What, what had been going on in the country with respect to abortion for the preceding 10 or 15 years? and we thought the way to do that would be to make accessible to people uh, the actual documents, the actual voices. There's social movement documents here. There's <coughs> excerpts of legal briefs. There's um, public, there's journalism of the period. And uh, you know, we're not trying to tell people what to think. We're trying to enable them to reclaim uh, history that is now seen only through the lens of Roe against Wade, and that tends to be a, a distorting lens because the way we think things unfolded uh, counterintuitively is really not, not the way things happened. I guess I would say um, that the book for me represents both an intervention in a public conversation as well as an intervention in uh, several fields of scholarship. So far as the public conversation is concerned, um, as anyone in this room knows, uh, the conversation about abortion rights or about Roe uh, has to be uh, um, uh, uh, as polar polarized and uh, entrenched as one could imagine. And um, yet the period before Roe was one about which most people, no matter how invested in the question, know very little about. And so there's something decentering and destabilizing about simply asking where did this come from or how did it come about. And so for purposes both of teaching and of conversation about the stakes of the matter, um, I thought that I would learn something and others might learn something and might actually ha learn something new about my thoughts about the question simply by shifting the terrain of conversation. Um, so that's maybe one reflection on the form of the book. Uh, if one said authoritatively what happened, one's taking a point of view. One can't do this without taking some point of view, but we tried to create a framework that was rather open, um, open to interpretation and conversation. It was an invitation in a certain way. The second thing I'd say about uh, the book is that it represents something of an intervention in scholarship uh, in, in scholarly terms in the sense that I'm interested in the relationship between adjudication and politics, between Supreme Court decision making and more wide-ranging forms of conflict both in representative branches of government and in civil society. And I've done that kind of inquiry about the nature of the abortion conflict in the post-Roe period. And this is trying to 
um, do a kind of excavation about the roots of Roe, as it were, um, in popular and political uh, uh, spaces in the decade before. And so I, I understand the project in both ways. It's an invitation to scholars and an invitation to teaching in a certain way. Uh, I just want to uh, take up that point. I mean, Reva, you've done a lot of work on the history of social movements uh, in particular, and you've talked about, for example, the, uh, the uh, rights of mm -hmm. gun owners and also abortion rights and many right, other. Race right now. And race as well, uh, issues. Who were the players before the Supreme Court got involved? Who was pushing for abortion rights uh, during uh, the period, say, from the middle of the 1960s up till the 70s. Uh, what were the kind of claims they were making? Uh, and could you compare them to what actually people think about today, about the kind of claims people make about abortion? Well, this is something that, that Linda and I found disorienting when we uh, backed up and went exploring uh, about, into, looking into the conversation in this decade before the decision. There's actually a whole variety of claims makers, and um, they're not arguing the same thing about abortion. So one of the things that emerges uh, as you start looking in the period before uh, Roe is that you can see that abortion is just meaning different things to different people. And, whatever is drawing people in is different than the ways in which we understand the question now. Um, some of it is maps on to expectations in the sense that there's a public health conversation uh, from a pretty early period. And you know, you hear, um, it's still commonplace reference to uh, hear about back alleys and coat hangers and the idea that there's health harms associated with abortion when it's illegal. And um, certainly some of our players are uh, speaking in the public health register about what's at stake. And I, let me just interject here. I mean, when, when Jack asked the question of sort of the roots of the, the claim for an abortion right, the public health community wasn't really thinking in terms of rights. I mean, it mm -hmm. certainly wasn't a claim being made on the Constitution. It was more uh, framed as an obligation of the public health community, of public health doctors, to do something about the fact that there were some hundreds of thousands of illegal abortions a year with uh, not only serious consequences, but with disparate consequences between yeah. middle class and wealthier women and poor women and typically women of color who were the ones who ended up in the back alley, not the ones with the note from a psychiatrist that let them get an abortion at Yellow Haven Hospital. So, um, it was really much more of a policy kind mm -hmm. of It's a frame. policy issue and a great society kind of issue. There's a social justice, you know, should there be one law for the wealthy and the poor kind of a question uh, that really threads its way through a lot of the public health talk without it being a rights question as such. And this influences the model penal code, I take it, as well. Uh, yes, although there's others. So the model penal code is a proposed set of revisions or liberalization. When the story starts running, abortion is um, criminally prohibited in all states. Um, there's differential access depending on whether doctors are willing to uh, interpret liberally the question of whether abortion is needed therapeutically to save a woman's life. Uh, but there's a, a reasonably uh, pervasively enforced ban. And then uh, the question of um, uh, its impact on poor people. But I guess you want maybe you want to talk about Sherry Finkbein or there, yeah, there I mean, are exceptions that start to turn up that map on to popular intuitions of where there should be access. It's not for everyone and it's not just for poor women. 
One document we have uh, early in the book is a first-person narrative uh, written by a woman named Sherry Finkbein, which only a handful of people in this room are maybe old enough to recognize the name. Uh, but I recognized it, and when I found this in a, in a file up at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, I just was, was electrifying. Uh, she was a young, married, uh, children's television hostess in Phoenix, Arizona in 1962. She was Miss Sherry on Romford Room. And she was pregnant, much wanted pregnancy, and uh, realized that the sleeping pill tranquilizer that she had been uh, taking that her husband had brought back by prescription on a business trip from Europe uh, was something called thalidomide. And she read a story. It was not yet uh, approved by the FDA. It wasn't in this country very much. Uh, but it was a very popular drug in Europe, and babies were being born all over Europe uh, without arms or legs. And she called her doctor and she said, what about this? And the doctor said, I have to give you an abortion. Well, in Arizona in 1962, abortion was legal only to save a woman's life. Her life was not in jeopardy. Uh, but he arranged for her to have an abortion in a hospital in Phoenix. And she said, you know, I really have to, I have an obligation to let other women know about this. And she went kind of semi-public and was sort of outed, at which point the hospital said, oh, now there's a controversy. We can't do this. And she couldn't get an abortion any place in, in the country and, and had to go to Sweden, uh, where she got a legal abortion. And this was, a this was on the cover of Life magazine in 1962. I remember sitting in my parents' living room uh, reading this. Uh, first time abortion was sort of discussed in a you know, public space, uh, uh, pretty much for many people. Uh, so that was, it, it kind of put abortion on the, on the agenda. Uh, for reform in the minds of people who had not had occasion uh, really to think about it. So it's a, it's a fascinating little story about document. Sherry Finkbein is the story of a woman who wants to be a mom who's um, modeling motherhood for women. And so this picture of what's at stake is completely consistent with traditional family life. Um, there's another um, uh, set of claimants uh, who are advocates for reform that grow out of, I mean, we'll do the short form of this, but just to give a flavor of the way in which the claim evolves or during the 60s, um, there's an early um, environmental movement uh, at the time talking about overpopulation. And uh, this uh, produces a form of talk about uh, the, well, I, I, it, there's a concern uh, about overpopulation, which produces a form of public talk about why um, it's important to have uh, contraception and uh, to make provision for non-procreative sex in public welfareist terms. So I, I've never, looking back at this, I've never entirely understood how much of the conversation was animated by genuine concern about uh, uh, limitation on the planet's resources and how much of it was animated by uh, finding a public language in which to talk about the notion of responsible parenthood and limiting children as a public good. But in any event, it occupies a very powerful and significant role in um, another wave of justification for, at this point, again, legislative repeal <laughs> of uh, uh, criminal abortion laws that's not restricted to the kind of limitations that the um, ALI um, proposes. But none of these is the same as 
um, uh, the one that people are familiar with, which is the, an emergent uh, feminist uh, argument right. that appears in the late 1960s, relatively late in the decade, and changes the terrain of argument all over again. So right. when does the women's movement get start to actually think about abortion in terms of sex equality? Um, and who's at the head of it, and how does it develop? Well, the, the kind of second wave feminism that comes along in the in the later 1960s was was at the beginning much more focused on uh, economic equity, uh, just basic claims of equality, and and abortion really wasn't an essential part of that agenda. Abortion was still being talked about by doctors and elite lawyers, and it wasn't until uh, the very late 60s that Betty Friedan, who had founded the National Organization for Women, not as an abortion rights mm -hmm. you know, organization, much more focused on uh, economic, economic justice, equity, um, kind of made the connection. And she gives a speech to a convening of basically white male doctors in Chicago in uh, 19, early 19, late 69, early 70, at which she, she makes the connection that women cannot have economic equity if they can't control their reproductive lives. And she says, uh, your cause is now mine. She said, uh, I may not know much about abortion, but I'm the only kind of expert that needs to speak about it because I'm a woman. And this was a very galvanizing uh, thing. and, and uh, uh, not without controversy. Not everybody who had signed up for now was on board this, and, and some people left and formed a, a women's rights organization that did not have abortion on, on the agenda. Um, but that's what kind of kicked it off. It actually has the effect of changing the stakes of the argument in really interesting ways because uh, the structure of Ferdinand's claim is a dignity-based claim, and she's essentially she's speaking. She calls uh, she refers to abortion as a woman's civil right. So it's the introduction of rights talk. It's the notion that at stake is women's competence, their uh, standing as a source of self, you know, as, uh, their capacity to engage in self-governing conduct, to be a source of decision making that's respectworthy in society at large. And as this claim merges with, uh, there's a 1970 strike for equality on the 50th anniversary of women's suffrage. And uh, in addition to the Equal Rights Amendment, the claims uh, include um, equal employment uh, uh, opportunity, uh, abortion on demand, and uh, the uh, notion of free 24-hour childcare. And these claims some a kind of rereading of what's at stake in equal, for, uh, in equal citizenship for women, something like control over the conditions of uh, th that, that sexually active women can nonetheless be full participants in the society and be uh, politically and economically autonomous and engaged in, on terms uh, with others who are non-parents. And uh, you can see that on this account, what's at stake in changing the law of abortion is different than all of the antecedent forms of claim, and it's going to elicit its own kinds of rejoinder. So just in terms of the social meaning of what's at stake in abortion, you can see the public health frame, which is basically paternalist or alternately concerned with sort of uh, equal employment uh, in this early period. I'm not making a transcendental claim about public health. I'm describing the early 1960s version of the argument, the sort of 
quasi-green uh, overpopulation argument is again focused on, I mean, it has a proto-sexual freedom dimension to it, but it's not focused on family structure in any disruptive sort of way. This last iteration of the claim is actually associating abortion with a whole other set of issues about voice and social structure uh, that make it a much more incendiary uh, kind of issue. It's a call to social revolution, yeah. really. So. Um, uh, we're sitting here in New Haven, Connecticut, and I don't think it would be possible to have a panel on this book uh, in New Haven, Connecticut with, without talking about this remarkable case with the remarkable name Women versus Connecticut. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about this case and, and uh, when it was brought and why it was brought and, and what happened? Well, I think we'll, we'll both weigh in on this, but, but it's, a way, it's a case called Abley against Markle. Uh, that was a, a challenge to Connecticut's uh, criminal abortion law, but it, and it demonstrates many things, including the engagement of basically all the women who were then students at Yale Law School. Uh, but it's also a way of uh, indicating that Roe against Wade was simply the case that got to the Supreme Court first. It was one of a couple of dozen cases that people had brought around the country uh, and in some respects, Women Against Connecticut was a better case, really. It was very, you know, very smartly done. Um, what, what, what was so smart about the way it was, uh, 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 it was brought? It, it followed, uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll let Reba tell the sort of the granular story about it, but it... it um, well, I, you know, I, I will, I don't think I'm going to go granular here, but I will say that it's actually, there's a set of documents from the case in the book that uh, show that um, uh, there's strat we were able to get strategy memos from the case from people's uh, basements, and there's pamphlets, organizing pamphlets. The, there were a number of named, I think the case starts out with over 800 named plaintiffs, individual plaintiffs, and it goes to, uh, ultimately up to 2,000 named plaintiffs. Uh, it has, uh, like many of the early litiga litigated cases, it, it features uh, a practice of speak out. So there are affidavits from all of the people who are in uh, the case, and there's actually fascinating charts that show the kinds of injuries and impositions that they suffer in virtue of the criminalization of abortion in Connecticut. Uh, in fact, the book shows that there was um, efforts to change law both by legislation and litigation in different uh, jurisdictions. Here there was a lockup of the state legislature famously uh, over uh, visible in Griswold against Connecticut, which was only a couple years earlier uh, in Connecticut. and. Um, uh, this case is brought, and just uh, because I, I want to save time for conversation, I'll just say that briefly, the first time that they managed to get the law struck down, the opinion recognizing that the law is unconstitutional under the United States Constitution cites um, Title VII of the 1964, uh, uh, the Employment Discrimination uh, uh, Statute, basically, um, the 19th Amendment, um, uh, the first equal, uh, equal protection opinion, and uh, there's something else in there that I'm missing. Oh, the Equal Rights Amendment draft uh, as a basis for the invalidation of Connecticut's uh, criminal abortion statute. Suffice it to say that this is not the normative authority that's appealed to in Roe versus Wade. In any event, uh, this case, um, when the law is invalidated, I'm not going to give a lot of detail. Um, there is 
counter-mobilization in Connecticut, as there was in New York, and it's reenacted by the state legislature and struck down again in an opinion uh, by Judge Newman, uh, who many of us know, uh, who reflected on a reason for invalidating the statute in a way that would recognize also the state's interest in protecting potential life, uh, invokes the notion of viability, and this case is up on appeal at the time that uh, Roe was decided. So, and, it's actually, very, and it actually influences Justice Powell. Right. In the, in the deliberations on right. So oh, this yeah. actually plays at the the litigation here in, in a number of dimensions played had influences on the understanding of standing in Roe and also on the ultimate regulatory structure that Roe uh, adopts. But we won't go know, into this. It's here. a very interesting story. But I, I want to talk about the counter mobilization in a second because I want to talk about the reasons for the resistance in both New York and Connecticut. But. Before I get there, I want to talk a little bit about the women who brought the cases and wrote the amici and developed the arguments that were largely ignored by the Supreme Court of the United States in Roe. What kind of theories were these attorneys bringing in these cases? Actually, that, that question was one of the things that drew me initially to this project, because if you read Roe against Wade, which of course hardly anybody does, although lots of people like to talk about it. so. You know, what, what jumps out at you is there's no women in it. Mm -hmm. It's really about the rights of doctors to practice medicine on behalf of their patients' interests as they understand those interests. So, you know, you might ask yourself, well, where does this come from? Where, were there no women's voices presented to the court? On the other hand, were there no voices on behalf of the fetus presented to the court? Because the two dissenting voices, uh, Justice Rehnquist and Justice White, really are talking about what we might call in today's you know, terminology, judicial activism. It wasn't a brief for the unborn. So where were these missing voices? Well, they were in the briefs. I mean, there's a kind of a puzzle. Did the court choose not to respond to them? Was the court unable to hear them because they, they come to the court as voices from the margins at that time? But they're all there, and the, there's an appendix uh, in, in the book in which we excerpt um, uh, nearly all of the briefs that were filed. There weren't that many briefs filed. There were about 15 amici. I mean, some briefs had several amici, but you know, now when kind of a middling important Supreme Court case gets you know, 50 or 60 amicus briefs, so that seems like very few, but, uh, but it was all there. It's just you know, what the court made of it, we're left to kind of ponder. The, the briefs are actually, I'll just say this briefly, and I'm kind of interested in talking about counter-mobilization. But, but, um, but I don't, but just tell me, what kind of arguments <laughs> did they make? Uh, so they're interesting, even from today's standpoint. There's, um, so I, I'm going to at least name two lawyers of the many who could be named, uh, and there are many. Um, one, Nancy Stearns, who was at the Center for Constitutional Rights um, and uh, worked on the New York case, uh, Abramowitz, who played a really shaping role in a number of states in writing uh, uh, briefs on this issue. Her work was shared around. Um, and uh, in Connecticut, a woman named uh, Catherine or Katie Rohrbach, who's a graduate, early graduate of this institution and worked with Tommy Emerson on the Griswold case and was uh, in the Connecticut Civil Liberties Union and had a great and under-recognized, under-appreciated career, I think. She also did work for the Panthers in the 70s, who's really uh, quite uh, uh, fascinating and uh, uh, 
socially interested in all kinds of forms of social transformation. Um, they uh, worked on the briefs in the Connecticut case that we referred to, and the briefs um, incorporate into them uh, voice. So remember, we were saying earlier that there's a dignity claim and a notion that women's voices matter, and the ways that these cases were argued, uh, because there's an absence of decisional authority, they try to fill it in with um, what ought to count, which is women at the root of things. And so uh, they uh, incorporate into the, the briefs elements of women's assertions of the ways in which restrictions on abortion alter their lives in the domain of sex, in the domain of health, in the domain of uh, employment opportunities and uh, the welfare world, and also in terms of um, their uh, relationally and the structure of their marital and non-marital relationships. And uh, then this is tied to the Constitution in a potpourri of ways, because again, these cases are coming up before modern equal protection law. Uh, so basically, Griswold is out there, and the language of privacy is used. But the, the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment is used to talk about the double standard and punishing women for sexual expression in ways men are not pu punished. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment's Equal Protection Clause comes in both on uh, 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 wealth inequality as well as uh, stereotyping, and there's a variety of other uh, grounds. Thirteenth Amendment, I mean, things that. They came yeah, up with a lot of different They come up with yeah. a lot. In other words, there's an enormous creativity in the way that these attorneys are framing the issue, which pretty much gets lost in the way in which the cases develop and the way in which they're taught today. I want to talk about opponents of uh, first abortion reform statutes and then abortion repeal statutes, especially in New York and Connecticut. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the book, of course, the Catholic Church is opposed to these uh, reforms, just as they're opposed to reforms about uh, contraception in Connecticut. But the thing that's interesting in the book is Catholics are not uh, univocal on this. They're deeply divided. Uh, and how does the, what are the origins of what today we would now call the pro-life movement? That is, the pro-life movement, as this book shows, starts well before Roe. And it's not the pro-life movement we, we understand today. Well, it's, a, it's an important point that it does start well before Roe. And, and that's a major interest of ours because people today think, well, the right to life movement, as we know, it was a response to Roe, and it was a response really to the, the first winds of change. And by some years before Roe, the Catholic Church had funded and mobilized a, a powerful uh, counter-reaction that was uh, endeavoring to reach beyond the church itself and to speak in a secular voice, uh, calling on civil rights language and international human rights language and so on uh, to try to, uh, to find allies in, in their cause. Okay. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's in, say, around 1967 or so that the National Conference of Catholic Bishops begins to uh, convene to figure out how to respond to what is incipient waves of state uh, legislative reform. This is not to repeal abortion laws, but rather <laughs> to adopt the ALI reform statutes that made exceptions for um, uh, uh, fetal anomaly or for rape, uh, incest, uh, or for women's health. And the beginnings of uh, 
legislative change or even consideration of statutory change um, drew out uh, opposition and uh, the cons the more that these bills and statutes spread around the country, the more organized and networked uh, state by state uh, opposition uh, grew. And so you can see basically a conversation <coughs> starting up uh, that is, uh, you know, it's, it's often the case when people have an investment in uh, the preservation of the status quo, see that it's shifting ground, they begin to begin to devote resources to, to finding creative ways to argue for the preservation of the status quo. And uh, we track that. It's interesting that at this point in time, opposition, there, there are many people who are uncomfortable with or opposed to change in the law of abortion, but those who are mobilized and going into politics to block it tend to be uh, affiliated with or funded by the Catholic Church. Uh, the configuration that we're accustomed today, which sees a kind of pan-Christian conservative opposition to abortion, doesn't materialize until the end of the 1970s. And in fact, there's almost, I think, potentially a reticence of uh, conservative Protestant denominations to enter into this conversation because the issue is seen to be one of concern to Catholics. Um, some of the earliest reform statutes passed in the South, uh, not in the North. Um, and historians have observed the um, uh, affiliation of uh, region and uh, uh, religious denominations. and. Um, it really takes some many years after Roe before this configuration of things begins to shift. I'll so just say, Jack, and I just yeah. say in terms of what's in the book, right. um, we have probably the longest single excerpt is from a little, really little book uh, called Handbook on Abortion, mm -hmm. written uh, around 1970 by Dr. Jack Wilkie, who was an OBGYN, uh, who went on to found the National Right to Life Committee. He mm -hmm. was its first uh, uh, president. And this is a book that uh, sold by the millions around the world, but sold by millions in, in this country. Uh, and I'd be willing to bet that on the pro-choice side, nobody's ever seen it, mm -hmm. although you can buy it what on Amazon What was remarkable about dollar. that book? What was the, remarkable about the kind of well, claims it, the It's made? written as a, as a catechism, but in a secular voice. It's mm -hmm. questions and answers uh, about abortion. It makes very good use of the photographs of the fetus that had the famous pictures by Lennart Nilsson that had come around uh, that, that time. Uh, and it's, it was written, and it's, uh, the format is very small so that people could carry it in their pocket. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it was a remarkably effective organizing tool. He was a he's still alive, he's in his 80s now, a uh, brilliant strategist uh, uh, of the movement because he disclaims any desire to uh, preach from a doctrinal basis. It's, much, it's kind of medicalized and, and uh, sociology and so on. It's a right. very interesting document. So it's not long um, after the uh, mobilizations begin in Connecticut and New York that the national political parties begin thinking about this issue. And a key figure in the book, although he only appears about three times in the book, but he really is an important figure, is Richard Nixon. Um, He's important for several reasons. First of all, his appointments to the court, most of them actually support the result in Roe versus Wade. Uh, Blackman writes the opinion, Powell, Powell concurs, and, um, Berger. And, and Berger. The only dissenter is, is Rehnquist, right? But at the same time, it might, you might think, this, so, so Nixon would be supported. But no, it's very different. He's a very canny fellow. He writes a letter to Terence Cardinal Cook in May of 72, 
And he starts realigning the Republican Party's views on abortion. And the, the book kind of captures how this begins. Yeah, I think that this was probably the most, um, of all facts, startling to me, which was to see that the Republican Party uh, got entangled in the abortion issue in the period uh, before uh, Roe was handed down, which I, I had done some historical work uh, with Robert, who's sitting in the back of the room there, um, looking at the sort of entanglement of the political parties in the question in the post-Roe period by the late 1970s, but hadn't had any clue that this had actually started as early as it seems to have. And um, the first sign that this was the case was the fact that Nixon intervened in uh, the effort to repeal the repeal statute in New York that took place uh, in 1972. And in puzzling why it was that Richard Nixon was interested in writing Cardinal Cook to encourage him uh, to, in fact, uh, 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 go on with his campaign to repeal the repeal statute, the statute that had repealed the criminal law or ban in New York, um, uh, I realized that 1972 was a presidential election year. And uh, in exploring that potential set of connections ultimately keyed into a conversation in which, uh, as Linda and I uh, saw, the Republicans were beginning to talk about abortion for a particular reason. Uh, that is, um, they too saw that the primary opponents of uh, the decriminalization of abortion were Catholics. And um, they were interested in the possibility of uh, encouraging historically democratically voting Catholics to consider affiliating with the Republican Party. In fact, I seem to recall that you found something in the Watergate papers on this. Yeah, it's actually, um, <laughs> it was n not the closest connection in my mind, Watergate and abortion. In fact, the connection had never crossed my mind. Um, but uh, once we uh, began to see that there was a conversation in the 72 campaign uh, that very few people, uh, non-conservative people recall, uh, who were in a position to recall, recall, um, uh, I began to puzzle about where it was that one might learn something about the election campaign uh, that elected uh, uh, President Nixon in 72. And it occurred to me that part of the records of that campaign were discussed uh, in the Watergate hearings under the Dirty Tricks rubric, um, uh, which produced a digital record of some of the campaign strategies, which is searchable. And when I went and searched it, discovered that indeed um, Pat Buchanan who had already surfaced in this story was having views about what it was that Richard Nixon might do on the question of abortion in the uh, pre-November uh, 72 period. And they, it, it was an argument of the kind that I'm suggesting, namely that um, the Republican Party is looking around for ways of expanding its electoral base. It's most famously doing so with respect to the question of race. Uh, the um, uh, so-called Southern strategy was uh, the effort to talk about uh, issues of race in a way that might coax historically democratically voting Southerners to consider switching parties and thereby increase the Republican Party's uh, voting base. And what Pat Buchanan saw was that the abortion issue also had this uh, potential, and he was inside the White House making, he not alone, he was uh, doing so um, 
uh, also with a, uh, someone named Kevin Phillips, who wrote a book called The Emerging Republican Majority, which was very much about this uh, realignment strategy. Uh, Kevin Phillips and Pat Buchanan were making the case for uh, the Republican Party uh, advancing critiques of abortion reform in a way that might attract voters. The book contains a document from the Nixon libraries called The Assault Book, which was Pat Buchanan's strategy book for the 1972 general election campaign. And in it, he identifies as a first set of issues on the domestic uh, front, um, abortion, amnesty, and marijuana, as it appears in here. Uh, in subsequent interactions over this strategy, it's referred to as the AAA strategy, which is abortion, uh, amnesty, and acid. Right. <laughs> and uh, the amnesty refers to amnesty for Vietnam War, draft dodgers, and acid I take to be still self-explanatory. So the issue is, um, what is this AAA strategy about? It's showing that there's a consideration not only of using abortion as a way of uh, identifying a demographic who might be persuaded to vote Republican, but also beginning to make appeal uh, uh, to voters who were um, traditionally uh, interested in preserving traditional social uh, relationships and were presumably alienated by uh, young people who either refused to fight in the war or refused motherhood or otherwise refused a certain order of public responsibility through their um, uh, enjoyment of drugs. And so uh, you can really see the beginnings of how uh, positions around abortion could be shaped by the interest in uh, cultivating uh, electoral support, uh, something which the more we explored in the pre-72 period, the more it struck us as illuminating not only something about the history of the period before Roe, but potentially something about the history of the post-Roe period as well. And I'll just mention a couple, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, w there was no evidence before the 72 campaign that Richard Nixon had any interest in abortion one way or the other. Uh, if anything, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, Republicans were more pro-choice than Democrats in those days by quite a lot. And in fact, there was a Gallup poll uh, taken in the summer of 1972, in other words, just as the court was uh, concluding its work on the opinion that showed that there was a majority of support for abortion in the country across all demographics, uh, but considerably more Republicans than Democrats. And so. This was not what, what Riva was describing about the political strategy. This was not a natural evolution. It was a very considered uh, kind of daring move uh, because uh, the Republican Party was the party of, of abortion reform uh, and, and was shifted in a completely other direction. So that you'd say that the, the world as we know it today is just light years away from the world that anybody would have expected. Completely upside down, absolutely. 1972. Yeah. Um, I think we should take some questions.